we go. For the fight auto workers who had twisted, tricked, and robbed. To the peasant in Guatemala in a sweatshop got your job. And she can't feed her family on the pennies that she makes. Meanwhile, the crime rate's rising up and down the Great Lakes. You know, it's no secret that Rich... Uh, was elected to be president of the AFL-CIO in 2009 at a difficult moment for the labor movement. We had to get into that ceiling. I'm like, okay, now I got to bend pipe and make this work. So I'm like, I'm, I'm bending the pipe and I'm doing like racks, but nothing is square. So you're trying to measure, but it's hard to measure, but then it's like you got to go by sight because I'm like, I'm, I'm, I was an apprentice. I learned everything has to be straight, even, level, beautiful. Welcome to Labor History Today. On October 26, Michigan Congressman Andy Levin, member of the House Education and Labor Committee, hosted a special order hour to honor the life and work of the late AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka, who died on August 5th. Before getting elected to Congress, Andy worked for Trumka at the AFL-CIO, and he talks here about Trumka's working-class roots and the historic role he played in the American labor movement. Electrician and journey wirewoman Kim Spicer is a proud member of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 3 in Queens, New York. Kim talked to the America Works podcast about how she tried many other less fulfilling jobs before apprenticing to become an electrician and why she loves her job. She touches on her training, some of the tasks and skills involved in her work, her daily on-the-job routines, and the challenges of being a woman in a traditionally male trade. On this week's Labor History in 2... The year was 1938. That was the day that the National Federation of Telephone Workers was founded in New Orleans, Louisiana. And finally, a very special treat, a brand new song from Tom Morello, just released yesterday. Tom teamed up with Grandson and wrote the song Hold the Line for every working person fighting for their rights on the picket line. The song and the video seamlessly merged past and present labor history, just like we do here on Labor History Today. We've got a link to the video and the AFL-CIO strike map in the show notes. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Hope you enjoy it. Here's the show. Like the union men and women standing up and standing strong. strike for one class of people. We're not first, not second class. We're all the same. Jobs. They're how Americans prove that they deserve health care. Right now, America is experiencing a big change in what it means to have a job, and especially what it means when your job treats you like crap. So let's find out what people are doing about it. A union to me means better health care, better wages. I went on strike to protect those benefits. 
Union Strong, Local 364. Nobody said it would be easy. Nobody said that it would all be fine. But to get where we're going, brother, you gotta hold the line. It ain't a matter if, no, it's just a matter of time. But to get where we're going, sister, gotta hold the line. Well, all the CEOs get all the money, and it doesn't, you know, they don't care to give us any of it. You gotta stay steadfast. I come before you with many wonderful colleagues to honor the life and legacy of Richard L. Trumka. Rich was a passionate and steadfast leader who committed himself to bettering the lives of working men and women in every nook and cranny of this country. Like many Made in America stories, Rich Trumka's had humble beginnings. He grew up in southwest Pennsylvania's coal country the son and grandson of coal miners. He worked the mines himself, and he was able to go to college and then to law school.
His talent and his charisma were hard to miss, which I guess helps explain how he came to lead one of our great and historic unions, the United Mine Workers of America, at a very young age. As president of the United Mine Workers, Rich led the iconic Pittston Coal Strike, a difficult but ultimately successful effort to fight off cuts to health care benefits of workers and their families. As a young activist, this labor struggle made a huge impression on me. I knew Rich for over a quarter century, and I enjoyed working with him in numerous capacities. In 1995, I had the honor of running the field operation of, of his historic campaign to become Secretary Treasurer of the AFL-CIO, along with President John Sweeney and Executive Vice President Linda Chavez-Thompson. Their victory was historic because it represented the only insurgent takeover of the AFL-CIO leadership since the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations joined to create the AFL-CIO in 1955. And that remains true to this day, 66 years later. Rich brought earthiness and oratory to the ticket, complementing the widely loved but more taciturn President John Sweeney from SEIU. A mine worker from Western Pennsylvania, a service worker from New York City, and a public sector champion in Linda Chavez Thompson from Texas. They made a perfect combination, and they brought big change to the labor movement in many ways. For the next 11 years, I served as Assistant Director of Organizing at the AFL-CIO, working closely with Rich and seeing his drive through innumerable organizing, legislative, and political campaigns throughout the nation. The picture next to me represents one such effort and one such opportunity for me to help Rich and the other officers carry out their missions. In their campaign to take over the AFL-CIO, they said that they were going to get young people involved in the labor movement in unprecedented ways. And so we created something called Union Summer, and they told me without a whole lot of notice that I had to put it together and lead it. And in fact, we recruited young people from across the nation, had over 3,500 applicants, and put 1,000 young people, which was their, the commitment they made, and they fulfilled it, 1,000 young people on union organizing and bargaining campaigns throughout this nation, and they were incredibly diverse. Something like two-thirds were women and over half were people of color. And this picture comes from the launch of the Union Summer campaign. And after Union Summer was over, the officers gave me a, a little framed copy of this picture. And Rich Trumpka's comments were classic Trumpka. He said, Levin, you did a good, no, an outstanding job on this effort. But thank God those kids of yours look like Mary. That was Rich Trumka. <laughs> Still remember it. You know, it's no secret that Rich uh, was elected to be president of the AFL-CIO in 2009 at a difficult moment for the labor movement. Due to a confluence of many different factors, working men and women faced a string of complex challenges. Becoming the head of the AFL-CIO was no easy task, but Rich was not one to pass up critical fights. 
Instead, he was able to rely on his character and conviction and his relationships to forge a path of consensus and solidarity among the 57 unions representing 12.5 million members of the AFL-CIO. Regardless of whether he was talking with workers on a factory floor or to the President of the United States in rooms of the White House few people ever see, even on TV, Rich was grounded in his pursuit to improve the material life of all working people and their families. The AFL-CIO was truly made better through his many contributions and his strong leadership. Coming to Congress and working with Mr. Trumpka as president of the AFL-CIO was a real highlight for me. I and all who knew him will miss him dearly. I'm grateful to my colleagues for being with me here tonight to pay tribute to Rich and to his remarkable life. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to America Works, excerpts from longer interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States, recorded by researchers for the library's American Folklife Center as part of its Occupational Folklife Project. And this America Work episode features excerpts from a longer interview with electrician and journey wire woman Kim Spicer. Spicer is a proud member of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW Local 3 in Queens, New York. Kim talks about how she tried numerous other, less fulfilling jobs before apprenticing to become an electrician, and she loves it. In this interview, she talks about her training, some of the tasks and skills involved in her work, her daily on-the-job routines, and the challenges of being a woman in a traditionally male trade. Kim was interviewed as part of the Archie Green Fellowship Project Illuminating History, Union Electricians in New York City. This oral history project was made possible through an Archie Green Fellowship from the American Folklife Center. The award enabled members of the IBEW, in collaboration with Empire State College's Harry Van Arsdell Center for Labor Studies, to document the occupational biographies of some two dozen of their co-workers. This is going to be my 10th year. I came in in two, um, 2007, but I got initiated to uh, 2008. Do you remember your first day? Yes. Yes, I do. They had me on, I think it was a six-foot ladder, with the, the huge chopping gun, with the huge bit, chopping through a wall. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this done. And I blew right through that wall, and, I, and that was it. I was, he was like, wow, that's a big hole. And I'm like, you told me <laughs> to do this, and that's what I did. And yeah, that job was, yeah, that, that was a fun job. I had so many jobs before I became an electrician because I didn't like anything that I did. I was a dental assistant before I, I came in. I did it, and as soon as I got into clinical rotation, I knew it wasn't for me because I could not deal with working with people and listen to them complain about something that if they had taken care of their teeth, <laughs> they wouldn't have these issues. So it just drove me insane. The only thing that I liked doing was like fabricating things and working with my hands and staying in the lab. I would see these signs about uh, new non-traditional employment for women 
everywhere. So when I called up and they were like, yeah, come in and came in, took the test. I got into a class and they tried to make me become a carpenter because I was really good. And I'm like, I didn't come here for that. I don't want to be a carpenter. <laughs> That's easy. I was like, I want to do something challenging. How did you learn? Well, you know what? I was always handy. Like someone posted on Facebook, their first tool was they showed a butter knife to take things out. And I'm like, no, we had tools at my house, like screwdrivers, pliers and everything, you know. All, and I did all this stuff before I got in, so I was always comfortable with tools and using tools. Even when I got into college, I was like bending my boxes and make, you know, forming the metal and everything on my own. So I was always comfortable. But I don't know, it might be something I got from my dad because I'm really, really handy and comfortable with, you know, certain things, except for confined spaces and like insects. Like, you know, like I said, I was always handy. So when, when I was younger, I would tell them like, you know, things to do or whatever. I would try to help them like, you know, I could do it. And they're like, oh no. And I'm like, okay. So the guy comes over, he puts in like a, a, a deadbolt lock with, you know, that turns and he put it in the wrong way. So he's trying to shut the door and it's not shutting. And before I could stop him, because I saw what he was doing, he took his foot and he kicked the door. And I was like, no, you idiot. What are you doing? I was like, we're stuck in here now. What do you mean? I'm like, these are the projects. This is a, a, a steel door. You just shoved another piece of metal in between it. We can't get out. We couldn't get out. So thank goodness my friend was on the second floor. Called somebody up. They had to kick the door in. But before that, I convinced him to wrap a sheet around himself to lower himself down to the first floor. And I almost like he had his head out the window and one leg. And these guys came by and they were like, what are you doing? And I was like, damn. I wanted him to go out that window so bad for getting us stuck in there. I was so mad. <laughs> I always wanted to tie bed sheets together and go out of a window, but not personally because I know you'll die. But I was going to send this fool out there because he got us stuck in that apartment. Have you ever felt unsafe at a job site? Yes. Yes, because it's electrical. So it's either you feel unsafe depending on who you're working with because you could have a dangerous partner. There are a lot of reckless people out there. You know, there's a lot of old timers that do reckless things. There's a lot of young people that do reckless things. There's a lot of people that aren't healthy that do reckless things. I had a friend once tell me how, you know, we're electricians. We don't, we don't walk, you know, we don't climb down off of ladders. We jump. And he jumped on a screw. And that screw had to be unscrewed out of his foot. That's, you know, that's reckless behavior, you know, not testing things. Or people just, you know, there's a certain way you carry tubing or conduit pipe, you know, you're supposed to carry when you're walking, you know, up. So this way you don't poke somebody in the eye or hit them, you know, a certain way you got to watch where you're swinging. You got to know, you know, your swing radius and everything to make sure you don't hurt anyone with, you know, your tools. But yeah, they're, they're people, they just don't have any consideration for others. And that's what other trades too. You got to watch out for everybody. Has your job ever felt creative to you? Yes. 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 Yes, especially like when I was in the Oculus and we had a ceiling that was, it was like, it looked kind of like, like a geometrical thing. Like these carpenters were fantastic, but we had to get into that ceiling. I'm like, okay, now I got to bend pipe and make this work. So I'm like, I'm, I'm bending the pipe and I'm doing like racks, but nothing is square. So you're trying to measure, but it's hard to measure. But then it's like, you got to go by sight. Cause I'm like, I'm, I, I'm, I was an apprentice. I learned everything has to be straight even, level, beautiful. A typical day is waiting forever for the elevator. 
which works perfectly fine. You don't need an engineer to press the button for you. Uh, we're just mostly going around like this building should have been done by now, so we're just, it's like, almost like punch list things. Like there's things that are missing that should have been there. Like we were troubleshooting this wire for, for a day. Couldn't find it. So of course the foreman, he finally comes around. He was like, you know what, try that box right there. So I climb up like a 12 foot ladder, open it up and I'm like, why didn't he come here yesterday and say, try this box while we're going upstairs, opening up panels, trying to tug on these wires and everything. No one has a toner and it's like, it was just madness. Well, my current coworker is awesome, Inez. I've been lucky in this industry so far where I've been with a lot of women. Like as a first year, I was with Dow Electric and I ended up on a deck job, which was another nightmare, but I learned a lot. I, there were two female electricians, it was Luz and Stella. We had like two female fitters, two female carpenters, plumbers, surveyors. Every trade had at least two or three females. So I'm like, I'm on a job with a bunch of women. We had bathrooms everywhere, you know, cause the bathroom situation is a whole nother thing. For some reason, ever since I was a first year apprentice, they like putting me on the bull gang which is the people that like pull the wire or, you know, set up these big wire pulls, like, you know, 600s, like big. But I got it done, so I guess they saw that I had some sort of strength and they kept putting me on it. What does it mean to be a, a union uh, electrician, a union member? It's, 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 it's prideful because, you know, it shows that, well, if you're A, that you went through everything. You went through that five and a half year hazing. Of, you know, of getting coffee and, and deliveries and all the craziness and you, know, you just, you know, you just feel really accomplished and, you know, it's like a brotherhood, sisterhood. You just start noticing things like you're in Whole Foods and you're like, wow, that's, they did the fire alarm really well, you know, it's just like, you know, you see everything and, you know, it's, you just notice the littlest things now. It's like, oh, excuse me. I like to I like to build and create things. So I get inspired like, you know, maybe one of these days I'm going to do something really cool like, you know, today like make something work or you know, I love a challenge. You've been listening to electrician and journey wire woman Kim Spicer of Queens, New York. She was interviewed on behalf of the American Folklife Center by fellow electrician and International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers member Jamie Lopez and the artist and documentarian Satari Arashli. To hear the complete interview with Kim Spicer, as well as hundreds of other interviews with contemporary American workers, please visit us online at www.loc.gov forward slash folklife or just search for Occupational Folklife Project. On behalf of the American Folklife Center, this is folklorist Nancy Gross. Thank you for listening to America Works. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1938. That was the day that the National Federation of Telephone Workers was founded in New Orleans, Louisiana. Today, the union is known as the Communication Workers of America and represents 700,000 workers in a wide range of communication fields. Attempts to organize the telephone industry began as early as 1910 by the International Brotherhood of 
electrical workers. By the end of the decade, the IBEW had more than 200 telephone unions. Growth in the number of union members in the telephone industry was greatly impeded due to World War I. During the war, President Woodrow Wilson issued an order to, quote, hereby take possession and assume control and supervision of each and every telegraph and telephone system and every part thereof within the jurisdiction of the United States. He placed control of the industry under the authority of the Postmaster General. After the war ended, telephone companies increasingly installed company unions as a way to control their workers' organizing efforts. Their aim was to stave off unionism from outside organizations. Nearly all of the IBEW locals lost their membership to company unions. But when Congress passed the Wagner Act in 1935, a new surge of independent unionism began in the telephone industry. In 1938, 31 organizations joined together in New Orleans to form the National Federation of Telephone Workers. It was a loose association of locally independent unions. But by 1947, it became clear that the union would have to form a strong national presence to negotiate with the nationwide companies. And the Communication Workers of America was born. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along. Leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music today, in addition to Hold the Line, included Union Song and Stand Up, both by Tom Morello. You can check out his website at tommorello.com, including his master class on how to play electric guitar. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. Every day the past, I'm angrier. Every time the cops get a hard pass,